0: Now, if you have a Bible, would you turn again to the book of Matthew, Gospel According to Matthew, chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, please feel free to borrow one from these black chair pockets. If you don't own a Bible, please feel free to keep that one. We're turning to Matthew, chapter 5, beginning in verse 27. Um, If you're using one of these black Bibles, the paperback ones, that's on page 690. If you have a gold one, that's 473. Um, So please follow along with me as I read, and this should get up on the screen behind me as well. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 27, Jesus speaking. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. comes from evil. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we, we can't improve upon the words of that last song we sang. We need you. Every hour we need you. And one way in which we need you is we are desperately in need of your word, in need of you speaking to us. Your words are life, they are food, They are what we need more than anything. They sustain us. And so I ask that you would speak, that you would speak through your word to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, there were some words in that passage that may have struck you as unusual topics for a Father's Day sermon. Words like lust and divorce and hell. And you may be wondering what do those words have to do with fathers? And in one sense, the answer is nothing, because this is not, I'm sorry to disappoint you, a Father's Day sermon, okay? So one of the things that we love to do at sunrise is we just pick books of the Bible or big chunks of a book, like the Sermon on the Mount, and we just work our way through them sequentially, because we want to we learn to think God's thoughts after him, and God's thoughts haven't come to us in, like, nuggets and anecdotes. They've come to us in letters, and histories, and books of prophecy. And so we don't want to just jump around every week. We want to pick a thought and follow it through and really get what God intended when he inspired Moses or Jeremiah or Matthew, like where we are today. So in, in, in one sense, oh, and, and by the way, one advantage of doing it that way is that we come to topics and hear from God on topics that we would probably never pick if we were just jumping around week to week. Topics like lust and divorce and hell. So in one sense, those words are not especially for fathers. This is just the next passage in our study of the Sermon on the Mount. But in another sense, they have everything to do with fathers and all the rest of us. Because what's the big idea underlying this passage, the character quality Jesus is urging us towards, is one that affects us every day in our work, in our relationships, and in our parenting. What Jesus is urging us towards is integrity. Now, some of you have purchased a home. Some of you are in the process of purchasing a home, and you would never do that without an inspection of the home, right? You, you know how it looks. You've, you've done the tour. You've seen it a couple times. You know how it looks, but you want to know how it really is. You want to know, is the foundation solid or crumbling? Is the ductwork clean or moldy? Is the roof watertight, or is it leaky? You want to know if the house has integrity. Integrity means wholeness, right? If you remember your, your elementary school maths, an integer is a whole number, right? It doesn't have a fraction. It's not divided. It's, it's a whole number. It, integrity means wholeness. Your, it means your outer life matches your inner life. You're one whole person, right? You're not different people depending on when, whether you're alone or with others, whether you're at home or at work, whether you're with Christians or non-Christians, you're whole, and your words match your actions. You tell the truth. What you say you're going to do, you do. You keep your promises. Jesus has told us in the Sermon on the Mount that Christians, the people who belong to his kingdom, he calls us the light of the world. He's saying when we live how he's calling us to live, people will see our good works. They'll be like light. They'll see our good works and they'll give glory to our Father in heaven. They'll praise God. And one part of our being light in the dark world is living with integrity. So we're going to look at at three facets of integrity in this passage. Having integrity means speaking truthfully, means being faithful comprehensively, and it means loving perseveringly. I know that's an awkward word, but I just wanted wanted it all to match. So you have an outline on the back of your bulletin if you want to turn there. We're going to look first at speaking truthfully. So look again at verse 33. Anything more than this comes from evil. So what, what's Jesus talking about? He's talking about truthfulness. So in, in Old Testament times, uh, the way that people would emphasize the truthfulness of those things, the way they would, they would show how solemn and, and honest they're being is they would swear. Not curse, but they would swear. They'd take an oath. They'd say something like, as the Lord lives, I'm telling you the truth. Or with God as my witness, I'm going to do this. They would would invoke his name to show their seriousness. And God was okay with that. It wasn't a sin, but he took it very seriously. So the third, this is your quiz, the third of the Ten Commandments, does anybody know? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Right? He didn't didn't want them to invoke his name if if they were saying something that was deceptive, or if they were making a promise that they weren't going to keep. But the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, had, they'd relaxed that command down to this. They'd said, well, it's only if you swear explicitly in God's name that then you actually have to be truthful or follow through. So if you, if you swear to God, well, that's really serious. Then you really have to follow through. But if you just swear by heaven, or you swear, I swear by the earth, or I swear by Jerusalem, then you're off the hook. It, it really doesn't matter if you're telling the truth or not. And Jesus will have none of that. He says, if you swear by heaven, that's God's throne. If you swear by earth, it's his footstool. If you swear by Jerusalem, it's his city. If you, if you swear by your head, it's his head, right? You can't turn one hair white or black. It belongs to him. All swearing is before God. So don't swear, just tell the truth. Let what you say be yes or no. So having integrity means speaking truthfully, But we don't. We affirm things that aren't true. We're asked, "Are you almost done with that project?" And we say, "Yeah, I'm almost done." And we've hardly even started, right? People ask us, "Hey, do you want to come out with us on Saturday night?" Well, I'm sorry, I have plans. Yeah, plans to be at home, right? We 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 make promises that we don't intend to keep. We say, "Oh, I would love to get lunch. I'll call you." We don't intend to call. We, we want people to like us, right? We, so we just, we say things that aren't true. We, we let people believe things about us that aren't true, and we just, we convince ourselves that's not a big deal. I never told them that was. They came to that on their own. It's not really lying. So why, why don't we have integrity with our words? There's a beautiful picture of integrity in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 2. So God has just created Eve, presented her to Adam, and Moses, who wrote Genesis, tells us that they were naked and not ashamed. So it's a picture of, it's complete integrity, right? They had nothing to hide from one another. What you saw was what you got. But after Adam and Eve sinned and humanity fell, we began to literally, he's, we, we lost our integrity, we began to literally disintegrate, right? Things began to fall apart. Our wholeness was broken. And now we're constantly cultivating an image on the outside that doesn't match what's on the inside. We want people to like and admire us. And we know that if they really knew us, they probably wouldn't. So we we lie to make ourselves look better. We embellish. We communicate things selectively. We're always kind of sprucing ourselves up in the eyes of other people. We lie almost instinctively. So when we're asked to explain why a deadline wasn't wasn't met, we take as little of the blame as we think we can get away with. Right? We, we promise to do something, and then we immediately forget our promise. We tell people, I'll be praying for you, but we never write it down. We never remind ourselves, and we end up never praying. Why do we do that? Well, we want them to think of us as someone who prays. That we want them to think we're praying for them, even though we probably aren't going to. And Jesus says, be done justifying half-truths and broken promises. You need a righteousness that's deeper than the scribes and Pharisees. Tell the truth, and when you don't tell the truth, confess it. Now, we're going to see next week that the way Jesus draws this whole section to a close in verse 48, he says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And that word perfect, it means whole, complete. You must be whole as your heavenly Father is whole. God has utter integrity, and so must we. God never lies. He never lies. Every word of God proves true. He always keeps his promises. He never lets us down. And his integrity is what makes it possible for us to have a relationship with him, to love him and trust him. We always know what we can expect from God. And when our words don't have integrity, now they do our relationships, right? People learn. They learn not to take what we say at face value. They learn to get the real story somewhere else. They learn to just kind of wait and see if we're going to come through, In Jesus' kingdom, his people tell the truth, and that makes it possible for us to love and trust each other, to be vulnerable with each other and depend on each other in a way that if other people could see it, would shine like the light of the world. So if you're living a lie, come clean. If there's someone who should know something and doesn't know it, tell them. If you've deceived someone or broken promises, ask their forgiveness. God, God has grace for liars, but we have to start by humbling in ourselves and admitting that we, have, we haven't been honest. We've cultivated an image that doesn't reflect the reality because we wanted people to like us. The people of the kingdom speak truthfully. We keep our promises, and integrity makes great relationships possible. And now we need to see what Jesus says about integrity in one of the most beautiful and most intimate relationships in the world, which is marriage. So secondly, having integrity means being faithful comprehensively. Look back at verse 27. He says, "'You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart.'" So Jesus goes back to the Ten Commandments and he's, again, he's taking issue with how the Pharisees have interpreted and actually the depth that God requires. And the seventh of the Ten Commandments is, you shall not commit adultery. Now we're going to see what the Pharisees were teaching about that, but we can't really understand the picture until we see the beauty of what God intended marriage to be. Marriage in the Bible is a covenant. It's a relationship built on promises From a man to a woman and a woman to a man to love each other exclusively, permanently, and comprehensively. So marriage doesn't say, and you've never been to a wedding probably where you heard anyone say this. Marriage doesn't say, if you do this and this and this, then I will do that and that. It's not contingent. Marriage says, I give my whole self to you and only you as long as we both shall live. It's not a contract. It's a promise. And because it's a promise, marriage can and should be a place of incredible safety and rest. We can really be ourselves because the other person has promised not to leave, right? We can can, uh, be vulnerable. We can open ourselves up. We can really depend on our spouse because they've promised to be there for us. And and that kind of marriage, a marriage built on promises, makes incredible safety and rest possible for children too, right? They They can be themselves. They can open up. They know that their parents are all in. Marriage God's way is beautiful. But like everything else since the fall, it disintegrates. It tends to fracture. And one of the ways it falls apart is through what Jesus calls lust. He's saying, you promised your whole self to your spouse. So don't think that you can just be physically faithful to them while straying in your thoughts and your emotions, and your desires. He says if you, if you even look with lustful intent, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Now, the Pharisees only cared about appearances, right? The outsides of things. They said, well, as long as you don't actually go through with it, you're fine. But Jesus says, no, faithfulness is much deeper than that. You have to be faithful comprehensively, not just with your body, but with your desires and your imagination and your eyes, So, is Jesus saying that we have to walk around this world with our eyes just fixed on the floor, you never make eye contact with anyone who's not your spouse, you just at meetings, if there's someone of the opposite sex, you have to sit next to them rather than across from them because you can't make eye contact, that would be way too close. No. Is he saying that it's a sin to find someone attractive who's not your spouse? I don't think so. So, the great reformer Martin Luther said famously of this passage, he said, I cannot prevent a bird from flying over my head, but I can easily prevent it from making a nest in my hair, which is to say there are thoughts and temptations that are just going to come that we can't prevent, but we can choose what we do with them. So it's one thing to notice that someone else is attractive or kind or funny. It's something very different to begin turning your thoughts to them thinking about what it would be like to be together with them, finding reasons to swing by their desk or sit next to them at meetings, trying to find subtle ways to get them to notice you. Listen, God knows your thoughts. He knows whether in your heart you're as devoted to your spouse as you appear to be. He knows whether you're fleeing from those things or cultivating them, tending them. Not, you, don't, you don't want them to get really big, but you, you want to keep them. You don't want to get rid of them altogether. And this isn't just a problem for married people, is it? Aren't unmarried people also tempted in all the same ways to, to imagine in their, in their mind someone as more than a friend or a coworker, to fantasize and to daydream, to try to possess someone else in their mind in a way that they have no right to? And do I have to say that this passage outright forbids pornography? There is no place for it. You may think it won't affect your marriage, but it will. It will keep you from being faithful comprehensively. You will expect your spouse to compete with the images and the videos, which will destroy intimacy. And if you're not married, looking at pornography will not at all prepare you for a healthy marriage. Even if no one else sees, God sees. And Jesus says in this passage, Get serious. He says in verse 29, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, a few weeks ago, my family and I were leaving a t-ball game. And we were headed to the car, and my younger son, Asher, who's three, Took off ahead of us. He could see the car in the parking lot. It was close to the gate, and he wanted to get there first. And Kim, my wife Kim, was the first one to realize that he was not going to stop before he got to the parking lot. And she she was with Joshua, and she said to me, You've got to stop Asher. And I, so we called out his name. He didn't stop. And what I should have done was I should have run and grabbed him and stopped him from going into the parking lot. But I didn't want to look silly. I didn't want to look like a father who didn't have control over his children, so I just pretended like it was no big deal and just kept walking at the same pace, and another parent, total stranger, had to stop Asher before he got into the parking lot. Now, it wasn't a busy lot. He probably would have been fine, but my point in saying that is this. I should have loved him enough to keep him from danger, and I didn't, but Jesus isn't like me which is why Jesus is not embarrassed to talk about hell. He wants us to see the danger. Now, here's what Jesus knows. Whatever you obey becomes your master. And the more you obey it, the more it becomes your master. And you will spend eternity with whatever master you choose. So if you trust in Jesus, if you obey him, you follow him, you will spend eternity with him, right? Jesus said in the Beatitudes, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. But if you, if you obey your sinful desires, if you, if you obey the temptations you know are wrong, if you, if you make sin your master, then you will spend eternity with sin away from the presence of God. That's why Paul says the wages of sin is death. If you give yourself over to sin, you will not spend eternity with God. And so Jesus says, get serious. Now, he doesn't literally expect you to gouge out an eye or lop off a hand because he already said the problem's in our hearts, right? But what he's saying is he's giving us a vivid picture of what it looks like to take drastic action in order to be faithful in our hearts. He says, whatever causes you to stumble— Whatever encourages you to stray in your hearts, even if it feels as essential to you as your hand or your eye, get rid of it. Spare nothing that could tempt you to make sin and not God your master. Get serious. So what needs to go in your life? Are there relationships you need to pull back from because they're tempting to you? Is there a kind of entertainment you need to be done with in order to clean out your imagination? Do you need to get a different job so you can spend fewer nights away from your spouse? If you're struggling, who do you trust enough to tell and ask for help? Jesus wants your joy. He wants you to know him and live forever. And think about this. What Jesus is calling us to, to be faithful comprehensively, this is exactly how he treats us isn't it? We, the, God's people, Jesus' people, they are the apple of his eye. He never wavers in his love. He never gives us only part of himself. He's totally invested in us, even though we don't remotely deserve that. And when we see his devotion to us, don't we want to trust and live for him? Don't we want to be people of integrity? Don't we think he'll help us? So the integrity that shines in the darkness, the integrity that shows the beauty of God, speaks truthfully is faithful comprehensively, and finally loves perseveringly. Look at verse 31. It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So if one way marriage disintegrates is through lust, another way is through Divorce, and as long as sin has been in the world, there have been divorces. People have marriages have ended through divorce, and so God has laws in the Bible that regulated how that was done. So He has this law in the Old Testament that says if a man divorces his wife, he has to give her a certificate of divorce. And the point of that was to protect the woman, because in that time women were dependent on men; they couldn't just go, you know, work their career. They were kind of cast out on the street. She would have to be able to remarry. And so he gave her a certificate of divorce that says she's free to remarry, and that was a way of protecting her, of doing justice, making sure that women weren't just being discarded and on the street. But the religious leaders of Jesus' day had taken that as permission for all kinds of frivolous divorces. They said, well, the thing that matters is giving her a certificate. As long as she gets a certificate, that's fine. And so there was even a school of thought that said, you could divorce your wife if she burns your dinner. And Jesus says, no, no. That is not God's plan for marriage. Marriage is comprehensive, exclusive, and permanent. He says later in in this gospel that when a couple marries, they're no longer two, but one. And what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So in that culture, I said a divorced woman would have to remarry. She would have to remarry in order to be taken care of. And Jesus says, if you just divorce your wife frivolously, she's going to have to remarry. She's going to marry someone else, and the covenant has not been broken. You're making her commit adultery. That's how serious it is. Divorce is not God's plan for marriage. If we could divorce for any reason, that would totally destroy the safety and security of marriage. In, good, in a good marriage, you can stop pretending, right, and, and really... Make yourself known and know your partner. But if if divorce is always on the table, then you're always selling yourself, trying to convince your partner to stay. Or you begin to withhold yourself, to kind of protect yourself because you don't want to have your heart broken. And a marriage can't endure like that. Both partners have to be all in. So Jesus calls married people to permanence, to love perseveringly, to stay married. And I know that for some of you, that's hard to hear. You feel like you have given everything to your marriage that you can, like you're standing on your last leg, that you've been hurt so deeply that you can't even begin to forgive, much less to to know how you could ever feel about your spouse the way you did when you got married. You think of those two people at the altar, young and hopeful and so full of love, and you don't even know what happened to those people Or maybe you have done the hurting and you don't know how you could ever begin to bring yourself to start making amends. Wouldn't it be easier to just start over? Just get out now and maybe have a shot at some happiness. At our wedding, Kim's and my first dance was to a song by Andrew Peterson called Dancing in the Minefields. And this is how it goes. While I was 19, you were 21 the year we got engaged. And everyone said we were much too young, but we did it anyway. We bought the rings for forty each from a pawn shop down the road. We said our vows and took the leap. Now fifteen years ago, and we went dancing in the minefields. We went sailing in the storms, and it was harder than we dreamed. But I believe that's what the promise is for. Marriage is hard. It can be excruciating. And that's what the promise is for. We say, for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, till death parts us. We make the promise because it's going to be hard. A few weeks ago in a sermon, I mentioned Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a pastor in Germany who was imprisoned and later executed for opposing the nazis and because he was in prison he had to miss the wedding of his best friend to his niece and so he wrote them a marriage sermon from prison and in that sermon he said this he said it is not your love that sustains the marriage but from now on the marriage that sustains your love so, if you depend on feelings of love, your marriage might fall apart because feelings come and go. But if you depend on promises, the feelings may follow the commitment. In fact, I read this week that a University of Chicago sociologist found that two thirds of unhappy marriages will become happy within five years if the couple stays together. Two thirds. Now, I don't want to minimize anyone's marital problems. I know there are people here who are only hanging on by their fingernails. But I wonder what would happen if if those of you with one eye on the door, maybe one foot out the door, would turn fully back to your spouse and be the first one to say, I'm sorry. This isn't how I wanted to end up either. I want to be all in. What can I do to make this work? And I I want to be really clear that if, if you're being abused, if you're in danger, I'm not saying just stick it out, right? If you are in danger, get safe and then think about the future of your marriage. And I'm not saying that if your marriage is struggling, you should just try to fix it on your own without help. Please reach out to someone you trust and respect, an elder, a community group leader, get help, but don't give up. But you ask, well, aren't there any exceptions? Is every marriage called to permanence? And Jesus, Paul mentions one in 1 Corinthians, which we're not going to get into. Jesus mentions one here. He says, he calls it sexual immorality. Everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality. If a spouse has been sexually unfaithful, then you you can divorce and remarry without sin. But you don't have to. Even after betrayal, marriages can be healed. Now, to save a marriage takes extraordinary forgiveness. You may have to extend it, you may have to ask for it. It may feel impossible, but it's not. And here's why we can love our spouse perseveringly because Jesus loved his spouse perseveringly. Who's the bride of Christ? It's us, it's the church. Do you know the story of the Old Testament prophet Hosea? God called Hosea to marry a prostitute, to marry an unfaithful woman. And just as you would have expected, she cheated on him and she left him. And God said to Hosea, go pursue her, win her back, bring her home, do it because that's how I am When my people are unfaithful, when they go astray, I don't give them up. I bring them back. That's how I love. When we had utterly turned our backs on God and broken his heart, did he say, good riddance? Did he throw in the towel? No, he pursued us to death. When we were in danger of being thrown into hell, Jesus threw himself in in our place. He took our judgment, our punishment on the cross So we could be washed clean as snow. He prayed from the cross, Father, forgive them. That's how he loves. So your marriage may at times feel like a crucifixion. It may feel like it's killing you. But Jesus' marriage to you was a literal crucifixion. And he stayed on the cross to prove his love. And when you've been loved like that, you can begin to love like that. And your marriage will become a picture of God's love. Fathers, the best thing you may ever do for your kids is to fight for your marriage to their mother. Now, I've been mainly speaking to people on this side of divorce, but I know I know there are people here on the other side. And if that's you, if you pushed for a divorce that you now know should never have happened, I don't want you to leave feeling condemned. We have all fallen short. God has grace for you. For that too, Jesus died, and that too, he can forgive. His arms are open to you. When we experience the love of Jesus and through his love become people of integrity, people who keep our promises above all our promises in marriage, we will shine like the light of the world. People will see our marriages and give glory to our Father who's in heaven, and they may come to know his love through seeing our love. May it be so. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we we give you thanks for your inexhaustible grace and your everlasting love and that you don't abandon your people. You don't give up on us. That you went all the way to the cross to secure us forever, even though we were faithless, even though we were unfaithful, even though we went constantly astray. We all went our own way and yet Father you laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. And we thank you for the hope we have because of the cross. And I ask, I ask that in this moment, in this moment that you would put your love in the hearts of each married person here that you would turn our hearts towards our spouse, towards our families that that where there's wavering will, you would bring strength where there's wandering thoughts, that you would bring them home. And Father, I pray for those who are not married, that you would strengthen them with integrity even now, that they would live in such a way, speak in such a way, that your light is seen in them. And I pray for us as a community, as, as a family, that we would be a place where really broken marriages could be healed and really broken people could be welcomed and where truth can be spoken, and where grace can be given, and where we can all move towards you and your love. I pray that you would help us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.